morning. All right, this morning we are starting a new series called To the Married and Unmarried. And I hope that you can tell that title is like the phrase Jews and Gentiles. It includes everybody, right? Everybody is either married or unmarried. So this is for you. This series is going to be a series of sermons on what the Bible has to say about marriage. And it should be good for several different groups of people that are here. First of all, if you are here this morning and you're a Christian and you are married, um, my plan is for this series, at least I hope for it to be good for you in the sense that you will be able to learn scriptures about marriage and apply them to the marriage that you're in. Um, For those of you who are here and you're Christians, but you are not married, I would say to you, there are a lot of things about marriage in the Bible that would be helpful to know before you get into one. Amen? Yeah, Yeah, like it's not, I know sometimes we might think like, well, what do I need to learn about marriage for? I'm not married, but you don't want to get married and then go, oh, let me look into this now. Like, I mean, some people do that, but you don't want to, you don't want to do that on purpose if you don't have to. There are some people who, um, they, they were married and they were not Christians when they got married, right? And then after they got married, they became a Christian. Then after they became a Christian, they learned what the Bible said about marriage and then started to apply it to the marriage they were already in at the moment that they had become a Christian. And if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. But I'm just saying, for those of you here who are already Christians and you're not married yet, it would be a great idea to look into this ahead of time and understand what the Bible says before you find yourself in the middle of one. Um, The other group of people I wanted to talk to is if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, um, but you would say, I'm never getting married, you know what I mean? Or I'm never getting married again. Um, I would say to you, I still think it is not a waste of time for you to learn and for you to review what the Bible says about this because you are in relationship with other people and you influence them with your words and they influence you with their words, right? And And the relationships that you have with one another. So you don't, like, imagine there's someone in your life and they come to you and they say, like, what do you, like, do you think I should keep dating her? Like, she's not a Christian, but she's hot. <laughs> and, and, and wait, no, don't look at me like that. She, um, I, I asked her if she'd ever come to church with me, and she was quiet for a while, and then said, maybe. What do you think? All right, and here's the thing. I think in that moment, you do not, you do not want to be the person that goes, oh, I don't know. I've never bothered to learn anything that doesn't directly affect me. And, you know, I, I don't know what you ought to do. No, according to the scriptures, we are a family who is supposed to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And sure, that doesn't mean every Christian has to be a professional on every topic, but I think every Christian should be familiar with the basics of what the Bible says about this topic. Um, One group that I left out, I talked about Christian married people, I talked about Christian not yet married people, I talked about Christian I'm never going to get married people, Um, but I haven't yet addressed if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian at all. If you're here and you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, or I don't believe the Bible, um, or that kind of thing, and, and if you're here, I would say this, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. Um, You are welcome here. You are always welcome here. Um, But I will let you know, in the case of this particular series, you may or may not find it helpful. Um, As you might be able to tell just by the way I began this, I am preaching this series primarily for people who already accept the Bible's teaching as God's truth, okay? I'm, I'm preaching this series primarily to Christians as to what the Bible has to say to us about this topic. And the Bible's teaching on this topic, for the most part, is very countercultural. It's very different than what our current society says. So if you're someone who's not a believer in Jesus, not a believer in the Bible, and you also are someone who thinks that our current culture is going in the right direction, you're going to hate this series. I just want to let you know that. Okay? So when we get later on, you go, I can't believe he said that. I'm going to be like, I told you you'd hate it. I told you you'd hate it. Um, 
But if you are someone who's here and you would say, no, I'm not a believer in Jesus, I don't believe the Bible, but I also have doubts that our culture is going in the right direction on certain things. Um, for you, I would say this might be helpful to you. There might be some things you find out about the Bible that confirm some of the hunches that you had that you didn't know really where they came from. So today, we're going to do an overview of the topic. We can get into more details later, but um, for today, I want to give you a general overview of the topic. We will not spend a ton of time on any one passage, at least not this week, um, but instead, I want to introduce you to four broad concepts. And so here they are. They're going to come up on the screen. Four broad concepts about marriage that I want us to start off with. Number one, marriage is about God. Number two, marriage is the place for sexual fulfillment. Number three, marriage is the place for procreation. And number four, marriage is about co-workership. So I want to talk to you about those four things, go through them, and then we'll do more things as the series goes on. But let's begin with the basics. And so we're going to start with marriage is about God. That's where we'll begin. In fact, the first two verses I want to show you are from Hebrews and Colossians. They're going to come up on the screen and they're going to come up at the same time. These are two verses that are not found really near each other, they're both, but they're both found in the New Testament. But the reason I wanted to read them both to you at the same time is there's a phrase that's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, that almost the same exact thing is said again in Colossians 1, 16. So if you could put the both verses up there. So Hebrews 2.10 um, is talking about a whole other topic. I'm not going to get into the larger context, but just wanted to read it to you. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God... Now, the thing I really want you to focus on is the bold print. How does this verse describe God? Okay, the words that come right after God say what? All things exist for him and through him. That's how Hebrews describes God. When it brings up this larger topic of what God is doing in the book of Hebrews, it describes God as the one that all things exist for him and through him. Everything that exists in the whole world exists because he decided he wanted it to exist. Everything exists for him, for his glory, for his pleasure. And through him, everything that exists was created by him and continues to exist because he decides it gets to continue to exist. So that's what Hebrews 2.10 says when it's describing God. What's interesting is almost the exact same phrase is found in Colossians. Colossians 1.16 says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. And here's the phrase. All things have been created through him and for him. Almost the same thing that was said in Hebrews. What's interesting though, in Hebrews, the Hebrews is talking about God, God the Father, that's what it says. But if you were to look and see what Colossians is talking about, um, Colossians, if I remember correctly, if you look at it in context, it's talking about Jesus, the one who died on the cross, okay? Everything was created by him. The him there is not God the Father. The him there is Jesus Christ the Son. And all things have been created through him and for him. Now, if you do not believe in the Trinity, if you just believe there's, there, Jesus was a historical figure and then there's a God, okay, then you, this, these verses are difficult, because what do you do with the fact that there's a place in the Bible that says all things exist for God and through him, and then you have another one that says, oh, all things were created through and for Jesus Christ. However, if you believe in the Trinity, as I do, no problem, right? That we believe in that there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If we believe Jesus is God, then we don't have an issue here. We can see that the Bible is consistent in the way it describes this. God, all things exist for him and through him. Jesus Christ, all things have been created through him and for him. And so what these two verses teach us is everything that's been made was made by God for God. Everything that exists, exists by Jesus for Jesus. Now you might say, okay, well, that's good, but what does that have to do with marriage? Could have swore you said this was going to be a series on marriage. 
Oh, see here, I want you to follow my logic. I believe that marriage is a thing. Is that fair? Okay, is that fair? Okay, so, so if marriage is a thing, then what I'm thinking here is God, it's God says, it says all things exist for him and through him. So I think marriages, every single one of them, they exist for him and through him. All things have been created through him and for him. So that, if, if, if marriage is a thing, then that means marriage has been created through Jesus and for Jesus, which means marriage was not created by you for you. Now that is an important distinction, is it not? That's huge. That's foundational. That is the most important thing I'm going to say all morning. If there is a couple, married couple, who believes that their marriage is by God for God, and another couple that believes our marriage is by us for us, won't that result in two very different marriages? It will. If you have... If you have two people over here who would say, we believe that our marriage was instituted by the creator of the universe and exists for his glory and for his pleasure, primarily, at, 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 the, top, at the tippy top of the chart. And then you have another couple who says, we believe that our marriage was created by us for our pleasure. I'm just telling you, those two marriages are going to look way different. Because marriage is about God. I want to show you another passage that specifically connects marriage to the Lord. Like these passages do that, but, but only in a general way. Like these passages just connect all things to the Lord. But I wanted you to actually see that there are passages that connect marriage itself to the Lord. And so I'm going to read to you from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. I'm going to go to verse 33. This is a section of a letter where Paul is talking about marriage. At least he's trying to stay on the topic of marriage. Um, He's talking about marriage, and I'm just going to read to you what he says to the Ephesians on this topic. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I'm aware the word submit right there causes everybody to freak out and will maybe freak out a little later on in this series because I don't have time in this series to get into every single thing that's in this passage. But I do plan on coming back to this passage probably at least two more times in this series. But for now, what I would rather do is just, would you focus on how many times there is a connection between marriage and like the Lord himself? I just want you to notice how many times that happens in this section. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Now, this is interesting. It doesn't just end the sentence there. It doesn't say love your wives. It doesn't even say love your wives a lot. It says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So he's talking about God again, but he's trying to talk about marriage, right? Verse 28, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church." 
since we are members of his body. And then he quotes from the Old Testament here, a verse that's definitely about marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. But then look at the very next sentence. He says, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, okay, so finally we get the summary of the whole thing. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. So I can't explain all of those verses this morning. Like I said, I plan on getting to it later on in the series. But for now, I just wanted you to note the very obvious connections that happen over and over and over again if you read that whole passage in context, right? Or you know, just read all, like all the verses one after another after another. There's major connections between husband, wife, marriage, and Jesus Christ and his church. Like according to this passage, if that passage means anything at all, it's gotta mean this, right? You can tell he's saying our marriages are supposed to mirror the gospel, right? Did you see that in there? That our marriages are supposed to mirror the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if that's true, then that means we don't get to just make up all our own rules for how to do this. I know we live in a culture that just, well, everybody figures it out their own way and everybody does their own thing and this is how we do marriage and this is how they do marriage. And I mean, yes, I think we do make up some rules. I realize there's, you know, the, we're gonna take the trash out on Tuesdays and blah, 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 that kind of stuff. But I mean, in general, like, what is the purpose of this? What, what's the point? How is it that we accomplish what God intended? Well, if it's supposed to mirror the gospel, we don't get to just govern over our marriages however we want. We don't get to just make up all our own rules. Marriage was created by God for God. It exists for his glory, and there is a pattern to follow. That's a very important start. All right, number two. Marriage is the place for sexual fulfillment. Marriage is the place for sexual fulfillment. Um, this is in multiple places in the Bible, but I want to show it to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think it's a really interesting passage. The Apostle Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and you can tell uh, this is a letter that he wrote them in response to a letter that they wrote him. They'd been exchanging letters back and forth. So Paul and the Corinthians are pen pals. And when you get to chapter 7 of Corinthians, he's responding to stuff they wrote in their previous letter. So I'm going to read to you verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 7, and then I'm going to skip to the beginning of the next paragraph, and I'm going to read to you verses 8 and 9 of that same chapter, because they're parallel. It's like two couplets. He says something in verses 1 and 2, and then he basically says it again in verses 8 and 9 in the same chapter. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he says this, now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. But because sexual morality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And then skipping down to the first couple of sentences of the next paragraph, he says, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So interesting here, like I said, you can tell that they're writing letters back and forth because the very first verse starts with, in response to the matters you wrote about. So the Corinthians and Paul wrote these letters back and forth to each other, okay? We, have, we don't have the Corinthians letter, we only have Paul's letter. So we don't know what they said, we only know what he said back to them. But you can tell by what he said back to them a little bit of what they must have said. It sure looks like um, the Corinthians must have, when in their letter to him, they must have asked him questions about sex or divorce or marriage. Because when he writes his return letter, he says, in response to the matters you wrote about, and then he goes on for like a chapter about divorce and sex and, and marriage. So this is how he starts it. He says, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man 
not to have relations with a woman. Now that phrase right there, relations, is a euphemism for sex. So he's saying, hey, it's good for a man to not have sex with a woman. Like, this is great. He is, he is saying singleness and celibacy are good. In fact, I, this is almost autobiographical for him, okay? This guy was unmarried at the time that he wrote this, okay? He was a single guy who was not having sex with any women. So he says, hey, and it matters to, to what I wrote to you about, it is good for a man to not have relations with a woman. He's saying that, I'm doing that right now. Like, that's what I'm doing. I'm a man who's having no relations with a woman, okay? Nothing wrong with this. Singleness and celibacy are good. And you can tell that he believes that. He says it again in verse eight. I say to the married, oh, sorry, to the unmarried and the widows, like if they're wanting some advice about a handle relationships, I would say, hey, it is good for them if they remain as I am. You don't have to get with anybody, right? So that's what he says here. So you can see that he is saying singleness and celibacy are good, and I think that's important for us to know. I think when we see that in the scripture, it helps us know how to handle things in this life. Those of us who are married, we should not ever look down on people who are unmarried. Like, oh, you're not married. You know, like, like, that's, a, like that's an issue. Like, no, Paul said, this is good. It is good to remain that way, Right? But sometimes, I think those of us who are married, we sometimes will look down on unmarried people. I don't think we do it on purpose, but you know how sometimes people do this, right? Where they just look, oh, look at you, you precious little half a person. <laughs> One day you'll get married and then you'll be like a whole person like the rest of us. No, <laughs> but that is, not, that is not what the passage teaches, right? The apostle Paul was a single man who wrote this, right? He was a whole person right? Unmarried, and he was a whole person. Jesus Christ was not married. He was the most whole person there's ever been. Okay, so no problem with singleness. However, it's interesting because in each one of these couplets, he says something that helps us know what, a little bit something about what he believes about sex. In fact, what the Bible's position is on sex. So notice, it's good for a man not to have relations with a woman, but... But because sexual morality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Then later on, he says, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, what should they do? They should marry. What do these verses assume about sex? It's for marriage. It's for marriage only. That's the assumption. The verses actually don't even say sex is for marriage only. They just take that for granted. Like that's just, they just assume that that's true. Verse two and verse nine don't make any sense unless you already assume that's the case, right? If they do not have self-control, they should, why would he say marry? Because marriage is the place for sexual fulfillment. Otherwise he would have said, hey, if they don't have self-control, you know, go get a girlfriend, right? Go get two girlfriends, get three. If you really low self-control, get a whole bunch of them. That's not what it says. It says if they do not have self-control, they should marry. The assumption is that sex is for marriage only. Whoa, okay, Mario, Mario, okay. Like, I realize it says that, but I mean, do, do you believe that? Yes, I do. Mario, Mario. Do you ever, do you watch TV? I, in fact, do. So you realize that nobody believes that nowadays. Oh yes, I'm very aware. And yet you still believe this? Yes. The majority can be wrong. You can say to me, well, 283 million Americans don't believe that. And I would say 283 million Americans are wrong about that. 
And, and woe to the society that determines right and wrong by polling everybody rather than by what God has revealed because that society is headed for a crash. Number three, marriage is the place for procreation. Now, I had a Bible verse for this, but honestly, I don't even think we need one for this. It is just the next logical step from the previous point. Sex is the procreative act and if it is limited to marriage, marriage becomes the place where new people are made and raised to become the next generation of people who are to honor God with their lives. Yes, that was a short point, but there is no reason to belabor it. Number four. <laughs> marriage is about co-workership. Marriage is about co-workership. Now, I'm not 100% sure that the word co-workership is a word. In fact, I'm quite certain that the internet does not believe that co-workership is a word because my, my, my spell check says that, that that's not a word and none of the online dictionaries have it as a word. However, if you Google, like there are other websites out there where people use this. I didn't make it up. Like there are websites out there where, it's, where that word's out there. So I'm going to use it. And the reason I'm going to use it, I don't usually make up words for sermons, but I, I, for today, I'm, the reason I want to use it is because it says something a lot more specific than the word I would have been tempted to use, which is companionship, okay? Marriage is not just about companionship, I do not believe. I mean, it is about companionship, but it's more than that. And the problem with the word companionship, I think, is it, it wouldn't imply that anybody's getting anything done. And so that's why I gotta, I gotta use a word that's not a word yet, but hopefully one day. <laughs> Marriage is about co-workership. God made human beings to work for him, right? Not just to be there, but like to work for him and to worship him and to serve him. And when he takes two of those human beings and puts them together, he wants those two people to serve him together. And so the place that I see this is Genesis chapter two. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter two. If not, I'm just gonna let you know I'm reading to you from one of the very earliest stories in the Bible. This is the book number one. This is story number one, or I guess you could call it story number two because chapter one of the Bible is about the creation of the heavens and earth. And then we get to Adam, and then we're about to get to the beginning of Eve right here in Genesis chapter two. So let me start reading in verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden. Now, who's the man? Adam, okay, so good. So we're, the story is like we remember it, right? The Lord God took the man, Adam, and he placed him in the garden of Eden. Yep, that's how I remember it too. Now, why did he place him in the garden of Eden according to the, according to the verse? What's the next two words? He placed him in the garden of Eden to work. What? Wait, how did that get in there? That was not in my children's Bible when I was a kid. Okay. I thought, didn't you think that God made the world and his original like perfect paradise was Adam there, like just laying by the pool with a mojito, just vacationing for all of eternity. But you read the actual Bible and it says that God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. So, so in God's original perfect creation, he took the man, put him in a garden and said, not you're a vacationer. He said, you're a gardener. So in Genesis 2.15, we see God gave the man a job to do. Okay, number two. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So he gives the guy a job to do and he gives the guy a command to obey. You see that? Then comes the creation of Eve. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable. 
I'll make a helper as his complement. So what we see here is God gives this man a job to do. He gives the man a command to obey. And then even as we're about to get into the creation of Eve, we're going to see that God made male and female earlier in the story. Some, some of these things are told out of order. Earlier back in chapter one, God's will for males and females together was already revealed. And it was that they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That had already been said into the story. So Adam is on this earth He's supposed to be part of the people who fill the earth and multiply and subdue it. He is given a job. He is given a command to obey. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. So what does that mean? Why did, why did he make Eve? What's going on here with this very first marriage? I'll make a helper as his complement. I'm going to start with the most confusing word on here, which is the word compliment, because it's not the normal word we use for compliment. In the English language, there are two words pronounced compliment. One has an I in the middle of it. One has an E in the middle of it. The one with the I in the middle of it is the one we most often use. It's the word that means like, hey, nice hair. And, hey, cool tats. All right, like that's compliment. All right, compliment with an E is when two things correspond to one another. When two things go together, like complementary angles in math, complementary colors, right, in art class. So when, when, one, when one thing is like suitable or matches up with another thing, that's the word compliment that's being used here. So then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper that is suitable for him. I will make an helper, a helper who corresponds to him, who matches with him, who goes with him. So that's what he's saying. Now, why does he do it? Well, it says the reason he did it is because the guy needed a helper, right? That's what he was making, a helper. Well, what's she helping him do? Now, this is important because I think that when I was growing up, I heard this passage preached on a lot. And I think that I, it was, I think the wrong thing was emphasized most of the time. Whenever I heard preachers preach on this, it seems to me that what they would do is they would really focus on this word right here, alone. They would say, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And they would interpret the word alone almost to be as a synonym with the word lonely, okay? So he's, oh, it's not good for the man to be lonely. Oh, look at the man. He's so, oh, he's just sitting there by the tree all by himself. He is so lonely. So then once you've imagined that that's what it is, that Adam is just so lonely, that you then go, I'll make a helper as his compliment. Oh, well, what's she helping him do? I think we would just assume she's helping alleviate his loneliness, right? That's, that's, what, she, that's what she brought along for. She's there to alleviate his aloneness. I don't think so. It's not the word lonely. It's the word alone. It just means there's one of him. And the verses before that, the guy's got a job. The guy's got a command. The guy's got a whole world to fill up. And then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone all by himself. I will make a helper as his compliment. What is she helping him do? I think she's helping him tend the garden. I think she's helping him obey the commands he's been given. And I think she's supposed to help him be fruitful and multiply. He certainly needed her for that, right? If he was going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he was not going to do that alone, all right? So that's what she's helping him do. I think that she is not just his companion. She's helping him accomplish what God has given for him, which is a garden to tend and a command to obey and a world to fill. When you look at the Bible's earliest marriage, I think we see that it is not merely about companionship, but it's about accomplishing God's will together. Companionship is included, but it's more than that. Okay, so these are the four broad concepts. If you could put them back up on the screen. That's what I wanted to start off with today. And that's the sermon, except what I want to do is I want to end by talking about each one of these and how it may apply to your life. 
because different people are in different situations. And as we think through these, if these things are true, how might that apply to your life? So let's just go through them one at a time, starting with those of you who are married. If you're married, marriage is about God. How does knowing that, like if you're a married person, how does knowing that marriage is about God, how does believing that affect your marriage? Like if marriage is not about you, not made for you, right? But it's about God. How would that affect the marriage you're currently in? For those of you who are teetering on the edge of divorce, I mean, you've got big decisions to make. Does it make a difference whether your marriage exists for your pleasure and was made by you and can be undone by you? Or does it matter whether it was instituted by God and exists for his pleasure? Does the difference between those things have anything to do with the decisions you have to make? Because I think they do. Or if you're someone who's not married and you go, okay, what is knowing marriage is about God for? Like, what, how does that affect me at this point in my life before I get married? Well, I would think that this should affect who you date and how you date and what your expectations are. I mean, honestly, if marriage is just made by you for you and you just, when you get there, you'll do whatever you want, then of course, the moment, like the moments that come before marriage, what would you do? Like, I guess what I'm saying is if, if the plan later is do whatever you want and you try to think, well, how do I prepare for that now? Well, I guess you just do whatever you want now and that'll prepare for you to do whatever you want then. But if there's a pattern then that matters, then wouldn't that back itself into the life you're living right now before you get there? Marriage is the place for sexual fulfillment. If we believe that, if you're here today and you're a married person and you believe that, wouldn't that affect your view of adultery or pornography? I mean, if marriage is the place for sexual fulfillment. If you're an unmarried person and you go, well, why does this matter to me? If marriage is the place for sexual fulfillment, then that, wouldn't that change the way you view sleeping with people you're not married to, whether you should move in with your boyfriend or not? Whether this whole like, hey, we're gonna get engaged, we're engaged and we're gonna get married in 2027. Like, is that even a good idea? That's a long time. That's a lot of temptation. What about the fact that marriage is the place for procreation? If you're here and you're a married person and you now realize, okay, marriage is the place for procreation. I mean, shouldn't we take parenting seriously as like the place where we're raising up the next ones for God? And if you're someone who's not, um, you're not married yet, isn't marriage is the place for procreation good to know ahead of time? I mean, I didn't think about this. When I was dating, I did not think about this ahead of time. But this is important because what this is gonna do if you realize this is you probably are gonna need to ask yourself questions, not just would she be a good wife? Would he be a good husband? But ask the question, would he be a good dad? Would she be a good mom? And then number four, marriage is about co-workership. Oh, this is fantastic. If you're someone that's already married and you realize marriage is about co-workership, the competition between husband and wife can go away. I know that there are times where married people, I mean, I've, I've seen it. Sometimes I don't even think they're purposely revealing it to me. I mean, some people confess stuff to me because I'm a pastor and they're just, you know, let me tell you everything I'm doing wrong. But, um, <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes people just accidentally let it slip too. And I catch those. And, and sometimes married people, there's this jealousy between the two of them as if somebody's not there to be the helper of the other one, but rather we're both fighting for our fair half of the stuff, 
right? And he got, he got, you know, he bought three of them during the same 10 years that I only got one of them. And she's got a lot more free time than me. And that's not really fair because well, they came out of my checking account, but yours thing is only every other month. And that's not, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not fair. And so I got we gotta get, you, oh, can you imagine the conversations that you currently have where you're on one side and your spouse is on the other side. And like the, the imagine this is like a, um, like the conversation you have about your financial resources. This is like the budget conversation. Some of you don't even have a budget. It's the money conversation. And you sit there and you start talking with them, what about this? And they say, yeah, what about this? And so like, there's like a pie on the table, right? And you're sitting there fighting for your fair half of the pie. And they are trying to make sure they're getting their fair half of the pie, right? And so we got to make compromises and we got to kind of fight this out and argue this out to make sure because you got another one and I didn't. But that was this thing, yeah, yeah, but that came out of your bank account. I don't even have access to that bank account. And here we are, trying to make sure that we are slicing this pie directly down the middle so I get my fair half and you get your fair half. What if you just ditched all of that and said, okay, no, let's both get on the same side of the table, shoulder to shoulder, as people who are coworkers. And here is the pie that God has blessed us with. Now, how do we together, shoulder to shoulder, together decide how we're gonna use this pie for God's glory? No more, here's my half, your half, let's fight over it. No, let's together decide how we're gonna use this for God's glory. Marriage is about co-workership. If you're someone who's not married, you might go, why do I need to know that? I mean, I think one of the applications of this could easily be that I would say to you, don't settle for someone who merely alleviates your loneliness. I know that's tempting, but there are other ways to fix the problem of loneliness. Cat. Dogs. Friends, human friends. I'm telling you, if you are someone who's unmarried, run hard after God with your life and only unite with someone who is going to finish that race with you. And if there's not anyone there to finish that race with you, then don't marry anybody. So let me go ahead and end with a time of prayer. I'm gonna pray just a little bit and then I'm gonna be quiet for probably a good minute because I would like to give you the opportunity to talk to God about how this personally touches you because this is a whole bunch of stuff we've talked about and we have a whole bunch of people in all different situations and there is no way that the people that are over there need to pray about it in the exact same way as the people over here. And so I'm gonna just, just talk generally to God for a little bit and then I'm gonna be quiet so that you can talk to God specifically about how this touches your life. And then we'll close in prayer. God, we submit this to you. We pray to you right now about what's going on in our lives. We ask you for your provision. Maybe some of us are gonna ask you for forgiveness. Some of us maybe are gonna repent and turn in a different direction. Maybe some of us are gonna ask you to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Maybe for some of us, we'll say, give us this day what we need. For some of us, we might say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For some of us, we're gonna say, forgive us for what we've done or let us, help us to forgive him or help us to forgive her. But I just pray that you would help us at this time and that we, we, we at this time, I, on behalf of this congregation, we offer these prayers to you, specific prayers about what, what are going on in our lives related to all this. 
God, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'd shape us into the people you want us to be. We pray that your will would be done like in our lives, in our marriages, in the lives of those of us who are engaged, dating, just having like these premarital affections and not even knowing exactly how to act on them all the time. Pray that your will would be done. We ask that you would give us what we need. We ask that you would forgive us for when we've fallen short and help us to turn from our sins and back to you. We thank you that you are gracious and forgiving. Pray you'd help us to forgive others. I pray you deliver us from evil. I especially pray that for, for us as a church, as a congregation. I do believe the evil one wants to come in and ruin this aspect of life. And I just ask that as, if, as your people, we ask that you would deliver us from evil. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.